0: Scripture reading this evening comes from the Acts of the Apostles. We'll be looking at Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. Bill and I spent some, some time considering what series to work through next after I'd finished Jonah. And after some discussion, we decided upon the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is an exciting time in the history of the church. Uh, you see many uh, people coming to faith the Spirit of the Lord doing great and wondrous things. There's a lot to be learned from the book of Acts about how God works through his church. So this evening, let's begin that series by looking at Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of our living God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, till the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why plant a church? Hopefully this is a question you've had opportunity to ask yourself as you've either joined to this core group or have prayed for and encouraged and supported this church planting effort here in Oklahoma City. Many correct answers could be given to such a question. There is a need for more Reformed churches in the area that emphasize biblical preaching and reverent worship. There is a need for a church that will faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost, calling people to repentance and faith in God. We are a community of like-minded, theologically like-minded individuals who share certain convictions around core doctrines. We all want to gather together and worship God. That is a legitimate reason to plant a church. We could also ask this question in a different way. Why plant a church? I mean what would possess you to plant a church what could possibly possess a, a core group to plant a church it's hard work it requires sleepless nights rejection people will come people will leave there is always the possibility with with the newness of a core group with the newness of a church that there will be division and disunity. Church plant could ultimately not succeed. Will likely face a, a good deal of opposition or indifference. The devil likes to attack new gospel laborers, new church planting efforts. Why in the world you want to plant a church. We are planting this church here in Oklahoma City because we know that Christ is building his church. This is not just a, a possibility or a maybe. Christ is building his church. In Acts 1 Verses one through five reminds us of this when Luke says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Christ's work did not end when he ascended up into heaven. No, it continues to this day. And so our hope, our encouragement, our strength for planting this church is that Christ is actively working to build his church today. And so Acts 1 verses 1 through 5 calls us this evening in this specific context of church planting to believe that Christ is at work today. And to drive us this home, there are three truths we must believe. We must believe the earthly ministry of Christ We must believe the resurrection of Christ. And we must believe that the ascended Christ continues to work. First, we must believe the earthly ministry of Christ. This point may seem obvious. For many of us who have grown up in the church, it is obvious. We all know and believe that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was baptized that he preached and performed many signs and wonders throughout the land of Israel. We know and believe that he suffered and was crucified. We all know this. This this is in many ways the the elementary uh, stuff of the Christian faith. But we must not take it for granted because there is an unbelieving world out there who denies the very existence of a historical Christ. They claim that Christ was just a myth, a legend that a bunch of men made up, exaggerated tales of some rabbi in the land of Israel. We also notice that Luke doesn't take the earthly ministry of Christ for granted. He wrote the the entire Gospel of Luke, to a man called Theophilus to create a reliable, trustworthy testimony of the work of Christ while he was here on this earth. We see this brought out in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, which says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, to Theophilus so that he could have certainty about the work of Christ while on this earth. It's likely that at this time many different stories were circulating about Christ, you will recall that the Pharisees had hired men to bear false witness regarding the resurrection of Christ, telling these soldiers to to say that, that the disciples stole the body of Christ away while the soldiers were asleep. Well, the soldiers were asleep, how do they even know that uh, the disciples came? And so Luke is, is writing his gospel. So that Theophilus knows with certainty that this is what happened while Christ was on this earth. And Luke was something of a compiler. He does not say that he was there for all that happened. But instead he got together with everyone who was involved at the time. He talked to the eyewitnesses who who were there. Who had witnessed with their own eyes what Christ had done. Luke labored and compiled the stories so that there would be one accurate, truthful account. Luke wrote a divinely inspired history book. And Luke starts Acts, which is really volume two of this history, by reminding Theophilus of the earthly ministry of Christ Acts one verse one says, "The former account I made; former account being the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach." Now on Wednesday night we we saw that Proverbs begins with that well known statement: "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." Starting point, the foundation of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Similarly, Luke says that, that if you are to understand the book of Acts, you must understand and believe the earthly ministry of Christ. If you are to understand anything I'm saying in this book, you must know what happened before. You must know that Christ came to this earth. You must know and believe the earthly ministry Christ. If you do not believe the earthly ministry of Christ, then the book of Acts is just going to be one history among so many others of some idea about this prophet in Israel, this teacher in Israel who who gains a certain amount of acceptance among certain Hebrews, and eventually that teaching gaining acceptance in the wider Roman Empire. But the book of Acts isn't an ordinary history. It's not a history among so many others. It's a history about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we're not starting this this sermon series with the Gospel of Luke. I'm assuming that many of you are familiar to some degree or another with the work of Christ, with the history presented there in in Luke. And if you're not, perhaps it would be helpful if, if you spent time going through the Gospel of Luke in your personal devotions or in your family devotions. But... For now, let me just briefly try to summarize the Gospel of Luke. Try to summarize those 24 chapters in, in five minutes. The Gospel of Luke is about the work and teaching of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the culmination, the climax of salvation history. All of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms testified of the coming of Christ. And Luke gets that, that exciting task to tell the history, to tell of the actual coming of Christ, what Christ did here on this earth. And Luke, as a physician is keenly interested in the healing ministry of Christ. This Jesus came to heal men and women of their many sicknesses and infirmities. He healed the lepers. He healed those who were born blind. But this Jesus did not come simply to heal them physically. And he came to heal them of their greatest sickness, the sickness of sin. Jesus says in Luke five, verses thirty one through thirty two, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And all the healing wonders that Christ performed testified to the truthfulness of His teaching. They were confirmation that what Christ said was true. That what Christ, that who Christ claimed He was, was true. They confirmed that He was the prophet sent from God. Luke demonstrates That your only hope of salvation is in this Christ, who was unjustly and wrongly crucified. He was condemned to death by the authorities of his day, yet he was innocent. The Roman centurion, this Gentile pagan Roman centurion, the one who crucified Christ, would even testify to the innocence of Christ when he died, saying, This truly was a righteous man. But Christ was numbered with sinners to pay the price for your sins. He, the physician, died so that you might live. But he didn't remain in the grave. After being buried for three days, he arose again and appeared to many of the disciples, after which he ascended into heaven. The Gospel of Luke is an apologetic history of what happened. and It is a defense of the truthfulness of Christ's time here on this earth. And we briefly mentioned earlier Already there were people that doubted the work of Christ. Unbelief is not something new. We like to think that the day and age we live in has a monopoly on unbelievers and naysayers. But such existed from the very beginning. Some doubted whether Christ did all the things people said he did. False witnesses said Christ was a liar. Others said he did not really die on the cross, he just appeared to die. And then the disciples, if he did die, stole his body away. These objections are remarkably like the objections we hear today. Today you hear Christ could not possibly have been born of the Virgin Mary. That's biologically impossible. Something shady must have happened and, and these, these ardent followers of Christ try to cover it up just so that they could promote some religious or philosophical or theological idea. All they wanted was power, and this was the best way to get it. Or else you hear there are so many inconsistencies in the biblical narrative that we cannot possibly know what happened. Jesus surely did not rise again from the dead. The apostles were fanatics who got caught up in some sort of psychological fervor. They thought they saw him after his death. But it was really just them being overcome with an intense degree of emotion. They're just seeing things. But there are no inconsistencies in the biblical narrative. What we read in Luke happens and there are two main arguments that Luke gives for the truthfulness of these accounts. The first is that the stories were compiled from eyewitnesses. Luke says that in, in Luke chapter 1, that he, he, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, delivered them to us. All that Luke has written was confirmed by these eyewitnesses. Luke didn't come up with something. And we all know the importance of eyewitnesses. We live in a digital day where everybody seems to have a camera and is recording everything. Everybody is quick to, to question everything that person says about, about this particular event. But if that person was an eyewitness, was able to take a video of what, was, what happened, well, well, if that person is able to prove that, that he was actually there, well, then... Must be true. Must be true what he's saying. He saw with his own eyes oral histories where people video record others talking about the events of the past that they lived through or all the rage among historians today. And Luke is, in a very real sense, uh, the oral historian of the first century. He's relying upon these eyewitnesses. He's, he's getting together with the people who were actually there, with the people who, who were healed directly by Christ, who, who saw Christ being crucified, who saw Christ resurrected, and, and saw Christ ascend up into heaven. Luke talking to all of them, and then he, in fact, witnessed some of this himself. The fact that Luke relied upon these eyewitnesses, meant that if anyone disagreed with what Luke said, that they could then go to these eyewitnesses which who were likely alive and, and corroborate the story. And, and, oh yes, it is true. Yes, Luke is correct in what he's saying. And the second argument Luke gives for the truthfulness of the account is that he says in Luke 1, verse 1, that this narrative that he is writing is a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. What happened in the Gospel of Luke is not ordinary history. It is extraordinary history. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke essentially says, if, if you do not believe what happened and you are truly interested in the truth, well, go through the, through the 4,000 years of prophecy that you find in the Old Testament, that you find in the Hebrew Scriptures, where you read prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the Messiah, and see if what I'm telling you about was prophesied in the past. See if what I'm telling you corroborates with what the Old Testament says the Messiah will do. If you doubt me, well, there is an entire set of scriptures that confirms me. There can be no mistaking it. This is the promised Messiah. This is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke presents the truth regarding the work of Christ here on this earth. If you are hoping to understand Acts, you must understand and believe it you must believe the earthly ministry of Christ but you also must believe the resurrection of Christ know that Luke in Acts 1 verse 1 says the former account I made o Theophil- Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach what we read in Luke is is only the beginning You thought the story ended when you read chapter 24 of Luke, but you're wrong. There's much more to be told. Christ died and and rose again, but that did not signal the end of his work. Acts 1 makes it very clear that, that Christ's work continued for some time on the earth. As we read in Acts 1 verses 2 through 4, until the day in which he was taken up, that is, until the day in which Christ was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke purposefully emphasizes the resurrection He emphasizes the truthfulness of the resurrection. He made it abundantly clear in his gospel that Christ had risen again. Look at Luke 24 and see what Luke says about the resurrection of Christ. He recounts how the women found the tomb empty, and two men in shining garments told them that Christ had risen as he said he would. Luke recounts how Jesus then appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Now Christ appeared to Simon. Then Christ appeared to the eleven disciples. That is multiple lines of independent testimony testifying to the resurrection of Christ. And now in Acts, Luke once again recounts how the risen Christ had given commandments to the apostles and presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. These proofs were unmistakable. In other words, they could be interpreted in no other way than that Christ was alive. The disciples were, and you have to remember the disciples themselves, they were reluctant to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Luke 24, verse 11 says that the women who found the tomb empty told the disciples what they had seen. They told the disciples that they were hearing testimony that, that Christ had arisen. Disciples, Luke recounts, said their words seemed like idle tales. But they did not believe them. This was the stuff of, of crazy women overcome by emotion. The disciples were not forced to believe the resurrection. This in many ways seemed to be the last thing they wanted to believe. But the testimony which they saw with their own eyes of Christ's resurrection was so plain and obvious that it could not be mistaken for anything else. Christ showed them the marks on his hands, on his feet, and on his side. He could not be mistaken for anyone else. He walked and talked with the disciples, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them, walking them through the entire scriptures, showing how he had fulfilled all those prophecies. He ate and drank with them as he had done in times past. This was not just a one-time appearance either. He appeared to them throughout the 40 days between his, his resurrection and his ascension. 40 days is a long time. There are constant reappearances of Christ to disciples and others over and over and over again. Surely you could argue that The evidence for the resurrection could be doubtful if Christ only appeared to one person. And it only happened once. But that's not the case. Christ appeared multiple times to multiple people, even as many as 500 people at once. Resurrection was not some hidden knowledge. It was open, clear and unmistakable. The proofs of the resurrection of Christ are infallible proofs. They are clear, unmistakable, and no wise man will debate those proofs. Another part of those proofs that include that Christ gave the disciples' commandments, we read of those commandments in verses 5 and 6 of our text, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here by now the disciples surely believed the resurrection of Christ. But even if there was some tinge of doubt in them, that would all be wiped away when the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out upon them. Christ, in his gracious goodness, would continue to provide them. Even after he ascended into heaven, he would continue to provide the disciples with unmistakable proofs that he had risen. The disciples knew that this was Christ. Not simply because of the way He looked or appeared to them, but also because of the way He taught and commanded them. There was no one but Christ who was able to explain the Scriptures the way He did. Remember, this was the man who, who was running circles around the Pharisees at the age of 12. It would be pretty hard to to mistake Christ for someone else with his expertise, his supreme knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. If we are to have any hope for a church plant, we must believe in a resurrected Christ. Without a resurrected Christ, all our labor is in vain. Our faith has no meaning. We might as well give up now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and vain, and your faith is also empty. Several verses later, Paul says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We must believe in our resurrected Christ. And we must let the world know that we believe in a resurrected Christ. But it is not enough to believe in a resurrected Christ. We must also believe in an ascended Christ. We must believe that this ascended Christ is still working today. And that is the point of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles but it is really the acts of Christ carried out through his Holy Spirit in the apostles. If this was was just the acts of of the apostles, well, then you'd really have to scratch your head at the ending of Acts, where Paul is sitting in prison, and there's no conclusion to the story. Does Paul get out of prison, or is he put to death? That's irrelevant, because Christ is the main... person at work in the book of acts christ through his holy spirit is the main person at work in the book of acts it doesn't matter whether paul got out of prison or not what matters is that christ is continuing to work and build his church when you read the end of luke there Luke recounts the resurrection and the ascension of christ a brief couple of verses, he accounts the ascension of Christ. You could be tempted to believe that that's the end of the story. You can imagine Theophilus getting, getting the Gospel of Luke, and, well, that's, that's a nice ending, but what relevance does this have for me? Christ went up to heaven, that's it, that's the end of the story. This is, it's, it's a hopeless ending unless we have the book of Acts. But Christ is in heaven. he is continuing to build his church. Acts part 2 of of Luke is is that hopeful declaration that the ascended Christ has not forgotten us. That the ascended Christ is, is continuing his work. That the earthly ministry of Christ was just the beginning. Imagine that, just the beginning of what Christ is going to do. And so, you must know the truth of the ascended Christ. You must hold it with the utmost conviction and live it out in your life. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is building, governing, and and preserving His church. Christ is is not far removed from His church. No, He He is intimately involved in every aspect of it. I just preached through the book of Jonah. We can read stories like Jonah and many others in the Old Testament. Stories of God raining down fire and brimstone upon pagan, wicked cities. Stories of God making the sun and moon stand still so that Israel can win the battle. Stories of a of shepherd boy slaying a mighty giant. Stories of a prophet of God being swallowed alive by a great fish, and being vomited up three days later. We can read such stories and be tempted to ask, where is that God today? How come I do not see God working in such ways anymore? And as we work through the book of Acts, we're going to encounter many other amazing stories Stories of men and women being healed. We'll read stories of the power of God being seen in signs and wonders. And we can be tempted to ask, why don't we see God working in this way in Oklahoma City? In many ways, you're asking the wrong question. We should be asking, how is God at work today? The question is not, how come God isn't working in our lives? But the question is, how is he working? If you just stop and consider the work of God, you will see him at work. You'll see him working in the lives of your covenant children as they come to faith in him, standing up before the congregation, taking their covenant membership vows. You'll see God at work the broken sinner that partakes of the Lord's Supper with tears streaming down his eyes as he recognizes that, yes, Christ died for me. You'll see God at work in the heart of your neighbor as you share the gospel with her. And she, for the first time, knows the peace and the, the beauty of having a conscience cleansed from sin, cleansed by the blood of Christ. The question is not why does God not work today? The question is how is God at work today? You must believe that the resurrected and ascended Christ is laboring to build his church. Lean to this truth. You seek to establish this church plant. And let this truth shape your life. Let it shape your prayer life. If Christ is king over all, and he commands us to pray to him, well, then we'd better get down on our knees and pray. we better start spending time in the prayer closet, praying that God would save the lost, that he would save our unconverted family members, that he would do a work in the neighborhoods we live in, in our schools, in our city, that he would do a work in our hearts, that we would ever cling to the truth, that he is our ascended Lord and Savior. The Psalms filled with the hope that the Old Testament saints had in the ascended Christ. We've we've sung several of those psalms earlier, but, but the Israelites longed for the day when Christ would reign as ascended King and mediator. We have that reality, and that's what makes singing the psalms such a joy and a treat to us. Psalm 2 verse 8 says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It's a promise the Father makes to to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. Psalm 67, verses 5 and 6 says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, and the earth will yield her increase. Do you believe in an ascended Christ? Does that truth give you comfort? Does it strengthen your hands due to do the hard labor of church planting? Does it grant you encouragement? Do you yearn for all peoples to praise Him? No, that Christ is as active today as He was 2,000 years ago in the events of Acts. Don't let a uh, deistic culture, a culture that believes that God exists, but that God is not intimately involved in the affairs of life, hinder your faith in the power of the ascended Christ. Christ is enthroned in the heavens. Do not doubt the efficacy of prayer. Do not doubt the power of the preached word. Do not doubt the grace promised to those who partake of the sacraments by faith. Do not turn to psychology or technology to answer your problems. Turn to the person of Jesus Christ, who is seated enthroned in the heavens. Trust in him to build his church. See, our hope for planting a church is not in some philosophical proposition. Our hope is not in some theological thought. Our hope is not in, in some isolated idea. Our hope is not in some psychological phenomenon. Our hope is in a risen Redeemer. Our hope is in a particular precious person. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a hope this is. So why in the world plant a church? Because Christ is reigning enthroned in heaven. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well when he said, the starting point. The fundamental thing is that Christianity is about Jesus. Christianity is not a teaching. It is a person. That is our hope. We preach a gospel that is not some abstract idea. It is not an idea which comes and goes. We preach a living person. A person who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We preach Christ. And that is why we plant a church with confidence. So believe the ascended Christ is at work today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you, giving you praise that we can have a confident hope in an ascended Christ. Lord, we praise and extol Your name. And Lord, we pray that You would ever increase our faith, May we ever meditate upon the truth that You are ascended, that You have been given the kingdoms of the earth as an inheritance. May that be our hope. And may our longing be all the peoples would praise you. We pray in the name of your precious Son. Amen.